0: It was famously said that religion is the opiate of the masses. Uh, One reason that that's such a famous line is it just travels so well, it's punchy, and you immediately know what it means, right? Like uh, the reality of the world is too painful, so some people turn to unreality, to religion, to distract them and numb them and dull their hard feelings to be able to make it through life. whatever else Christianity might be. People have said it's a religion for weak people. Nietzsche said that. That's probably true. (laughs) But it's not the opiate of the masses because at the center of our message, at the center of our scriptures, at the center of what we believe is a guy hanging on a cross. This isn't about turning our eyes away from suffering. We look it in the face. And so it is good to be together together To do this together, to comfort one another, to sing together, to pray together, and now to open God's word together. Mark 15, beginning in verse 33, there's no place in scripture I would rather be this morning. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing heard this, they said, see, he's calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. And Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who was standing opposite him saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, wrote, We are not to regard the cross as defeat and the resurrection as victory. Rather, the cross was the victory won. And the resurrection, the victory endorsed, proclaimed, and demonstrated. In other words, we can sometimes think of the cross as this great tragedy And the resurrection as the good thing that happened afterwards that made it okay. But Stott is saying, yes, of course, the resurrection was needed to to validate what happened on the cross. But the victory was actually won and accomplished on the cross. There's two amazing facts in this text that, that indicate that this was a victory. First, the temple curtain was torn in two. And second, the centurion recognizes Jesus as the Son of God. So first... The temple curtain torn in two, verse 38. Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. What stands out here? There's two things that that stand out to me. One is that the curtain was torn in two. This is an opening of access to God. Access to God, fellowship with him, to, to be able to exist in his presence is what we were created for. At the the very heart, the essence of the triune God who has always existed is this fellowship between Father and Son and Spirit. And we were created to be invited into that and to experience it. And we see it in the garden. Before sin comes, the first humans have perfect access to God. He walks around in the garden with them. The garden was a temple. It was a place where God's presence dwelt and people had full access to him. And where they had access to God, there was was perfect, what the Hebrew writers call shalom, which is without a doubt a word that you're familiar with, Uh, but we, we sometimes lose a sense of what it really means. It's often translated peace, but it gives the picture of this perfect harmony where every single thing in creation is working together as it was designed to work. Humans had a perfect relationship with God and with one another and with the earth on which they lived. And yet this this shalom and this fellowship and access to God was lost. Human beings decided we weren't content to live under God's rule, to receive his love, to love him in return. We had to decide we wanted to be him. Remove him from his throne. Take the initiative to be God ourselves. And so this shalom relationship with God, one another, and earth was broken. Access to God was lost. And at the end of the Eden story, there's this angel, this terrifying warrior of light placed outside of the garden with this like crazy flaming spinning sword thing, preventing anybody access from getting back into this temple garden in the presence of God. The angel was really the first temple curtain Barring access to God's presence. And throughout the Old Testament, there was this sacrificial system that was given that was a way for unholy and unclean people to still have some sort of relationship with the presence of God, however mediated it may have been. You can think of really the whole Old Testament worldview in, in sort of these concentric circles where at the very center of the very heart is this pure and perfect holiness, the holy of holies where God dwells, and then beyond that is the holy place, and then the clean place, and then everything unclean is outside of that. And so the temple, uh, the temple system and this, this sort of concentric circle situation is a way for people on the outside to still have some sort of connection to God at the center, even if not directly. And the separation that kept them from directly entering God's presence did two things. One, it preserved a sense of God's holiness. People needed to know with, with visual reminders, physical, tangible reminders, you can't just walk up and approach God on your own. He's too holy and you're too sinful. So it preserved a sense of God's holiness, but it also protected sinful people from God's holiness. If if people walk into the presence of a holy God, it's not like God's not going to have his, like, it's not going to defile him, right? He's perfectly holy. He can't be defiled. It's a means of protecting people from walking into his holy presence. But this whole system is the thing that, that Jesus has been combating during his week in Jerusalem. Remember all those fights, all those arguments that he got into. He was saying he's going to tear down the whole temple system. He's going to put an end to it. And of course, he's responding not to the system in its purity, but a corruption of it. But nonetheless, the whole system was never meant to be permanent. Jesus is saying, I'm going to put it to an end. And he makes good on his word. The temple curtain... Symbolic of this whole thing, barring access to God's presence, is not just taken down. Like this this isn't some like nasty old shower curtain that you're just like, you know, taking the rings down and, and throwing away. This isn't, you know, bedroom curtain that you're replacing. It's torn in two from top to bottom. It's never going to be put together again. R. T. France in his commentary on Mark said, the process of the temple's destruction and replacement has begun even as Jesus continues to hang on the cross. This divine vandalism, as he calls it, also appropriately rebuts the mockery by the chief priests. You remember last week, even while Jesus is hanging on the cross, the chief priests and the scribes are walking by Jesus saying, he said he was going to tear down the temple, he can't even get off the cross. They're mocking him. And while he's there, the temple curtain is torn in two. France goes on, he says, The death of Jesus means the end of the temple on which their power and influence depended. With Jesus' death, the old religious order comes to an end. So it's torn in two. The other thing that stands out to me is that it's torn from top to bottom. This curtain would have been about 80 feet tall. It would have been made of fine Thick, heavy, weighty material, beautifully embroidered by the best artists, extremely heavy. And it's torn from the top to the bottom. The point is clear, isn't it? God did this. No human waltzed in. Even if they had, you know, if they tried to do it, it would have been inappropriate. It would have been blasphemous. Humans humans cannot on our own tear down the barrier that stands between us and God. But we, we couldn't even do it if we tried, right? God does this. What does that mean? What does that tell us that there's a barrier between us and God's presence and he tears it down? It means he loves us. It means he wants to be with us. It means he takes every initiative to remove every single thing that stands between us and him. We all want to be wanted. Um, I'm thinking of going to see Justin Schumacher on Valentine's Day play a show and sing. I want you to want me. I need you to need me. I'm begging you to beg me. But if that's too dated for you, um, you might think of Michael Scott asking, "Do I need to be liked? No, I don't need to be liked. I enjoy being liked. I like being liked. I have to be liked." (laughs) We all want to be loved by the people we most admire, and God is the person who's most worthy of our admiration. We should long more than anything else to be loved by God. And this tearing of the temple curtain in two tells us that he loves us enough to remove every single barrier between us and him. But how does he do it? Because we still have the problem of our sinfulness and his unholiness. So God doesn't just change and decide all of a sudden, like, I'm good with sin, come on in. Only because Jesus' body was torn could the temple curtain be torn. Only because Jesus' body was torn could the temple curtain be torn. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 22 gives this sort of allegorical, theological treatment of this. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter into the sanctuary, that's the the holy place, through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through the curtain, the writer says, that is, through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a heart, with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. The curtain, the writer to the Hebrews is saying, was replaced by the body of Christ. And it's not this impenetrable thing that only the high priest is allowed to open and only once a year. No, anybody, anybody who wants to go to God can get to him through Jesus. Jesus. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Through the broken body, under the the sprinkling of the purifying blood of the covenant, we can go into the presence of God. Jesus came with a mission, and it was to bring sinners back to God, and he's done it by his death. This story, the cross, is not a tragedy, it's a victory. Psalm 32 says how joyful is the one whose sin is covered. When we are covered with Christ by faith, our sins are covered by him and we can enter into the presence of God where Psalm 16 says we find abundant life, fullness of joy and eternal pleasure. Is your life marked by that? By the joy of somebody whose sins have been covered. Do you realize what Jesus has done for you to open up access to God the bottomless well of pleasure and joy. The second sign of victory in the text is the centurion recognizing that Jesus is the Son of God. In Mark chapter 1, Jesus is baptized and he comes up out of the water and a voice speaks over him, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Very beginning of Mark, there's this outside voice recognizing, affirming the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. And now here at the very end of Mark, Same thing happens. There's an external outside voice recognizing this one is the son of God. It doesn't come from the Jewish establishment who should have received him. It doesn't come from his disciples who he's been teaching for three years. It comes from a pagan Roman soldier who scholars think is probably the one who was responsible for overseeing the crucifixion. Something about his death proclaimed loud and clear to those who had ears to hear, this one is the son of God. Jesus wins this victory. He brings people access to God. He's recognized as the son of God, but how? Only through agony. Just as there are two signs of victory in this text, there are two signs of agony, darkness and a cry of despair. Verse 33, when it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. This is the middle of the day. Like this is the time of day where, uh, you know, if I've got the curtains in the back all the way up, Lucille's gonna be on me about letting too much sun in like she was this morning. Uh, This is when the sun should be at its brightest, right? And it goes completely dark over the land. Darkness over the land is a sign in the Bible of God's wrath and judgment against sin. It shows up multiple places in the Old Testament, most famously in the book of Exodus. You know the story of Exodus. You know God's people are enslaved in Egypt, and Egypt won't let them go. And so God says, I'm going to send these ten plagues against you, these disasters if you don't let them go. And we get to the ninth plague, and darkness comes over the land, this pitch black, disorienting unending, like can't-see-your-hand-in-front-of-your-face kind of darkness. It's interesting that darkness was the ninth plague in Egypt right before the tenth and final and worst plague, which is the death of the firstborn sons. And here we are 1,500 years after that, and darkness comes over the land right before the death of the firstborn son of all creation. The darkness is a sign of the full wrath of God against human sin, bearing down on Jesus. We can't imagine the agony. But the beauty that this is the self-substitution of God. This is God in Christ bearing the penalty for our sins in our place. You say, I don't like the wrath of God against sin. I don't like that idea. Well, good, because like he took it in himself so you don't have to. This is the only way the temple curtain can be torn. It can't just fling open. Something has to be done about our sins. And what was done is our sins were placed on Christ. And when we believed in him, his righteousness was given to us. The agony was necessary for the victory. So darkness first, the second sign, a cry of despair. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus here is quoting from Psalm 22, the first verse, which is a a messianic psalm or a psalm that prophesies about the Messiah. But it's important to remember, you know, at at various points in Jesus' life and ministry, he has said things like, you know, this happened to fulfill what the prophet so and so said about me. This is that's not what's happening on the cross here. He's not like taking a moment to say, and you down there, students, uh, this is happening to fulfill Psalm 22. No, this is a cry of utter despair. When Jesus is so disoriented that he can't pray his own words, he's praying somebody else's words in Psalm 22, putting words to how utterly abandoned he feels. It's important to note, put your theology caps on for a minute here. This is not, remember Jesus has two natures. One person with a fully human nature and a fully divine nature. You may have been taught that this is the divine nature of Christ, the eternal Son of God being cut off from the Father. That the Father and the Son have this breach that happens on the cross. That's not what's happening here. At His very essence, God is a trinity. Three persons in one God, one essence. That essence cannot be divided. If God the Father and God the Son were to have been separated on the cross, God would have ceased to exist, and everything would have ceased to exist. What this is, is Jesus, in his human nature, fully human, as human as you and me, feeling completely and utterly abandoned by God. It's the only time in the four Gospels where Jesus prays not to Father, but to God. The, the intimacy with which Jesus spoke to God, calling him father when he prayed, was unheard of in his day. Jewish people didn't pray to father. And, and this, in, in every other prayer in the gospels, he calls God father. And here on the cross, praying somebody else's words, all he can say is, my God, my God, where did you go? Have you ever felt that way? Like you can't pray to God as your father because he seems so distant and you just have to ask, like, what happened to you? Where'd you go? Do you think some of our friends at Covenant feel that way this morning? Do you think our brothers and sisters among persecuted church around the world ever feel that way? Going to church in secret, locking doors, not able to tell their friends and their family what they're doing? C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Problem of Pain, which is a sort of theological and philosophical treatment of pain and suffering, and in it, which is to say, by the way, it was a book about other people's pain. In it, he famously wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In other words, Lewis is saying, look, you, know, you may hear from God a little bit when things are going well, but he really speaks to you when you're suffering. That's when you hear most loud and clear from God. But After he wrote A Problem of Pain, or The Problem of Pain, Lewis got married. And after a few years of marriage, his wife Joy died from cancer. And he processed that by journaling, by writing. And those journals eventually became published in a book called A Grief Observed. And in that book, he strikes a very different chord. He says When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing God, so happy that you're tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. You may as well turn away. The longer you wait, the more emphatic the silence will become. There are no lights in the windows. It might be an empty house. Was it ever inhabited? In the edition of Grief Observed that I have, there's a foreword written by Lewis's stepson, uh, the, one of the two sons of his wife who died, and he makes a point that we sometimes forget the indefinite article at the beginning of the title. The book is not called Grief Observed. It's called A Grief Observed. It's C.S. Lewis's Grief Observed. So you may not, that, what I just read may not resonate with you, and that's okay. But it seems that Jesus felt the same way that Lewis did. It seems that on the cross he was banging on the door and all he heard was bolting and double bolting on the inside and wondered, is there even anybody in the house? He releases the second cry and with it his spirit and he dies. And that is when the victory comes. Not a second before. On the cross, by his death, through his agony, Jesus accomplishes the great victory that he came to accomplish. Victory over sin. Sin is the just accusation against you and me that we have fallen short of God's glory and we have every single person in the room, every single person on earth. Jesus defeated it by taking the penalty for it in himself even though he was the only human who never sinned. Victory over sin and victory over the devil. If sin is the just accusation against us, the devil is the accuser. That's what devil means, by the way. It means accuser. Satan points at us and says, that one's sinful. But if Jesus removed our sin, then he took Satan's only weapon out of his hand. The only weapon that Satan holds against you is the record of your sin. And if you have faith in Jesus, that record is nailed to the cross. He had won victory over sin victory over the devil and he won victory over death if sin is the accusation the devil is the accuser death is the sentence but if there's no more just accusation there's no more sentence jesus by his death conquered sin the devil and death and now when the devil stands in the courtroom of god and points at you and me and says that one is a sinner he is a sinner she is a sinner god smiles and says my son already served that sentence There's no more guilt, no more condemnation. The cross is not a tragedy. It's a comedy in the classic sense of that word. It's a story with a happy ending. Victory. Just as Jesus had to go through the agony to accomplish his victory, the same is true for you and me. This week has obviously been agonizing for all of us in different ways with different connections to the shooting on Monday. And on top of that, like we brought our pre-existing agonies into the week, right? Like we're already dealing with stuff, family stuff, health stuff, mental health stuff. Like we're 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 struggling, we're limping into a week and then our legs just get taken out from under us. And and the promise of the cross is that victory is on the other side of that. And I want to be clear, I don't mean this in the sort of cheap, cheesy way that like Instagram influencers and prosperity preachers tell you that on the other side of your divorce or your diagnosis or your job loss is a breakthrough if you just hang in there. Those people are liars and those are lies and those lies are harmful. What I mean is that Jesus endured his agony all the way to death and then the victory came. And the same is true with us. Like whatever we have to endure, we have to be ready to endure until death and to die in faith like Jesus did. And then comes the victory. In the book The Pilgrim's Progress is this allegory of a Christian carrying a heavy burden to the celestial city. And at the end he finally sees the city. He sees heaven but there's a body of water between him and it. And uh, there's no bridge across. He has to get in and go under. And That's the way he's going to get there you two and I at some point will have to sink to the bottom and trust that that's when victory happens. And not only that, but we're going to limp all the way there. (laughs) Why? Because, guys, the Christian life is not up and to the right. It's just not. Like, we follow a Christ, a Savior, who modeled not upward mobility but downward mobility. He came from a throne in heaven to this place, And then he went to a cross, and then the creed says he descended to hell. And only then did the ascent start to happen again. Why would we think it would be any different for his disciples, his learners, his apprentices who are following him on the way? The Christian life is not a promise of like, you're going to be more moral, you're going to be more ethical, and therefore, like, you're going to be better at your job, you're going to make more money, you're going to make more friends, you're going to have an awesome spouse, you're going to have amazing, healthy kids, and sure, you'll be generous with all the money you made. The Christian life is, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. And your victory is on the other side of that. It's not just true of Christ, it's not just true of us, but it's true of the world. Jesus did not just die to redeem individuals. He died to redeem the entire created world. The, the shalom that was lost in the garden, broken relationships between us and God, us and one another, us and creation. Jesus died to fix all of those things. Romans 8, the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. This is a, this is a really intentional metaphor that Paul's using. Groaning together with labor pains. We have the joy of having lots of babies in our church. Bethany, Ben are home safe with Jamie, this week, and Aiden and Natalie brought home Phoebe a few weeks ago. Lots of women in this church know what labor pains are like. But what's on the other side of labor pains? New life, birth. Paul didn't say the whole world is groaning together with the pains of a broken arm, he said labor pains because this agony that we face, the suffering that we face in life, the suffering that Jesus faced on the cross is not in vain. It is not fruitless. There is life on the other side of that. Of course, we grieve the things of the world. Guys, it should not be this way. Mass shootings, the killing of innocent children, We could have had so much more. It should not be this way, but it is not in vain. We grieve these things with hope. We might grieve them more than anybody else. This isn't the opiate of the masses. Like, why, why do you think that five minutes before he already knew he was gonna raise him from the dead, Jesus weeps over the death of his friend Lazarus? He knows what he's gonna do, and he still weeps. Why? Because it's not supposed to be this way. So we grieve. These groanings are the groanings of labor pain, but the groanings are not final. There is new life on the other side. Guys, I promise you that. It was true for Christ. It is true for you if you are in him. And it is true for the whole creation. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. He will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away.